The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Well, now that we're underway, I can tell you about our mission. Starfleet Intelligence believes that the Cardassians are developing a metagenic weapon. Oh my God. I am not familiar with metagenics. They're genetically engineered viruses that are designed to destroy entire ecosystems. When metagenic toxins are released into a planet's atmosphere, they immediately begin to mutate. They seek out and destroy all forms of DNA they encounter. In a few days, everything is dead. In a month, the metagenic agent itself breaks down and dissipates completely, leaving every city, every road, every piece of equipment perfectly intact. Leaving the planet safe to be conquered. Wouldn't using such a weapon pose as great a risk to the attacker as to the target? That's why metagenics and other biological weapons were outlawed years ago. Even the Romulans have abided with those agreements. Starfleet Intelligence believes that the Cardassians are developing a new delivery system. One that would protect them from accidental exposure to the toxin. They believe that the Cardassians are testing a way of launching dormant metagenic material on a subspace carrier wave. So they could activate the toxins after the launch, thereby preventing any accidental exposure. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 5th, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I am Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. What then? <laughs> Just right. Ah. Fade into color, color into black and white. Fade into color, Always the number you can call to reach us on the show if you want to join in on any of the conversations we're going to get in on today. Also, you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org for any of your suggestions or comments for future shows and on past shows. Right, Robert? That's right. What are we talking about today, Robert? I know what I'm talking about today, and I'm going to be talking about my ongoing theme of this anti-capitalist rhetoric that's going on this time as it was launched by the unions. Uh, more or less over uh, on, uh, you know, Labor Day this past weekend, and and I'm going to be talking about that in my two sections of the show. And I know near the end of the show you want to talk about their theme song, don't you? Yeah, the anthem Solidarity Forever. Just taking a look at the lyrics and exactly what they mean. Scary, aren't they? They are frightening. (laughs) (laughs) In any case, and you're going to start off the show with something else entirely. A little more, uh, something a little more grave, I'm afraid, and that is the uh, uh, supposed chemical attack. Well, not supposed, there was a chemical attack in Syria. And um, it's still actually up in the air as to who perpetrated it because uh, uh, the British are saying that it may not have been uh, Assad. And, of course, uh, President Obama is adamant that it was. So yesterday a, a committee in the United States Senate voted in favor of allowing President Obama to take some action. And uh, they're poised next week to give him permission to strike Syria for an apparent use of the chemical weapon sarin on a civilian population, killing as many as 1,400 people by some accounts. Now, I find it very difficult to understand the rationale for such an attack by the United States. 
on Syria. It can't be the responsibility to protect mandate of the United Nations, since R2P has been ignored many times in the past when actually millions of civilians, mostly in Africa, have been killed. We just ignore it. Yeah, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Yeah. What's it going on? It, it can't be that Syria is in a position to attack the United States, because it isn't. That's ludicrous, of course. It can't be that Syria is preparing to an attack an American interest in the Middle East, because it isn't. So far, the civilian Syrian civil war has been contained within the boundaries of Syria, with the only cross-border activity being the movement of refugees into neighboring Arab countries. In fact, it has been uh, threatened by Syria and Iran that if the U.S. intervenes, then Israel will become a target as it was when the U.S. repelled Iraq from Kuwait. It can't be that the Syrian rebels are fighting a noble fight against a vicious dictator since the rebels have shown themselves to be just as or even more ruthless and bloodthirsty than Assad. Apparently they are Al-Qaeda-backed, Muslim Brotherhood-backed. You know, I think that if I was a Syrian, I wonder whether or not Assad would be better and preferable to these bloodthirsty uh, Neanderthals that, that, that want to overthrow him. And, and it's really ironic, I guess, that here's uh, Barack Hussein Obama wanting to overthrow Assad, backing the rebels in this uh, a supposed attack that may happen next week or so, um, when the people that will, will rise to power in Syria are unknowns, probably worse than Assad, you know, may have, the, uh, uh, you know, in their hands, the very chemical weapons that Assad is accused of using. You know, the U.S. has always been pushed into a situation entirely in the Mideast, all throughout, of having to align itself with what I would call the lesser of a given number of evils. Because there's no good over there to pick from, right? That's true. So what do you do? And, and it's no different than when we don't have a political choice here domestically. If we've only got three bad parties to pick from, we've got to pick the lesser of three evils, mm -hmm. right? So it's that on a greater scale. What is the U.S. to do, given that those are, what, its only options? You see, the, uh, or are there, is Obama, there a third option or a fourth option? Obama, well, there is an option. That is just to mind your own damn business. But the United States has, oh, uh, hasn't in, done that since World in terms War II. Of, but I'm speaking in terms of picking sides. Like, here's yeah. your, okay, you're going to pick a side. Well, they've always picked option? Assad. Right. Because Assad kept to himself. He did not, he's not a belligerent. He was, never was a belligerent to other countries. Um, he may have left, uh, let Iran through the borders to, to back the Hezbollah in Lebanon against Israel, but um, other than that, he's basically kept to himself. So why Obama would want to back Assad over those, um, uh, an unknown as far as the rebels goes, is, 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 is strange to me. Um, again, to continue the list of why uh, I find it difficult to understand the rationale for this attack uh, by Obama, it can't be the fact that civilians were killed. To date, over 80,000 Syrians have been killed in this civil conflict, including many thousands of, of civilians. So it's not the civilian thing. So apparently, it's because a chemical weapon was used. In this case, I think it was sarin. So what is it about the use of a chemical weapon that would make the United States go to war with Syria and jeopardize the safety of Israel in the process? Perhaps even fomenting some form of terrorist retaliation in the United States itself by Syrian nationalists in that country. I went to the United Nations website to see if there was a rationale for banning the use of chemical weapons. 
The Chemical Weapons Convention, which uh, came into effect in 1997, has no mention of a rationale for banning chemical weapons. No preamble, no discussion, just a resolution to ban their production and use. That's it. Syria is not even a signatory to the ban. There's five countries who didn't sign it, and Syria is one of them. So it oh, can't be that an attack on Syria is some way of punishing it for breaking its agreement, since it never agreed in the first place. Now, I listened to uh, the impassioned plea... No, that's the wrong term. The monotone, passionless <laughs> plea of U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry, whose call to arms sounded more like Droopy the Dog saying, Oh, dear but heard no rationale for the banning of chemical weapons or for the invasion of Syria other than they violated a treaty which they didn't even sign. There must be some moral reason for the ban, for the ban. but I can't find it. Killing civilians, yeah, sure, there's a moral uh, reason for, to uh, attack for killing civilians, but um, with chemical weapons? Yeah, as opposed to killing them with bombs and bullets, if they yeah. did that, they wouldn't have gone, right? The United States itself has produced over 30,000 tons of sarin in the past and is yet to meet its commitment to destroy their stockpiles of the chemical under the agreement that they did sign. Ten percent of their stockpiles still, still remain. So there's no moral argument there. They, they, they're not blameless. In 1998, CNN... Well, they're not using it, are they? Well, in 1998, CNN and Time magazine ran unconfirmed stories that the U.S. government actually used sarin gas in 1970 during the Vietnam War to kill their own soldiers who defected in Laos. The producers of the stories maintain the story's veracity to this day. And they have like, like 77 pages of documents and, and uh, testimony of people to say that the U.S. did use sarin gas on their, own, on their own troops. The United States helped kill Iranians with sarin gas during the Iran-Iraq war by giving satellite intel to the Iraqis who then used sarin on their Iranian targets. So the rationale for the ban can't be moral. Can it? I mean, the United States, has, uh, they don't have to be clean hands when it comes to the use of chemical weapons. I've come to the conclusion that the ban on chemical weapons is similar to the hysteria currently being experienced in Japan over the leak of small amounts of radiation from the Fukushima reactor, even though not one single person has died from this radiation. It is a fear of the unknown. And by the unknown, I mean that anything that's beyond the mental cap capability of an eight-year-old boy. You see, even an eight-year-old can't understand that a person can die from being bludgeoned to death, that a person can die from being bludgeoned to death, or hacked apart by a machete, or being shot, or having his limbs ripped off in an explosion, or by being riddled with bullets from a machine gun, or having their organs burst by the concussive force of a bomb. These deaths are simple to understand. There's blood. There's an obvious physicality to them that even a child can understand. A person can't live when their bodies are torn apart. It's that simple. That, that we can understand. But a picture of hundreds of people dead on the ground with no wounds, no blood, no hacked or missing limbs confuses a lot of people. It scares them. How can a chemical kill someone? I don't understand, they say. This is inhuman. This is barbaric. Death without blood. The insanity must stop. Hmm. The same fear is felt with radiation and nuclear weapons. How can people die months or even years after a nuclear explosion when the explosion is long past? We don't understand. Where's the blood? The same fear and ignorance is seen by those people who oppose genetically modified foods, nuclear energy, pesticides, herbicides, gasoline-powered, horseless carriages. 
There can be no other explanation for banning chemical weapons other than fear and ignorance. I can think of one other reason. Give it to me. Fear and ignorance, yes, on the part of politics, or politicians and the public, but perhaps, from what you just said, on the part of the military, maybe the reason is they want a monopoly on this weapon. That's a political reason, yeah. yeah. Well, it is, but it's more military-oriented. Maybe that's what they're more concerned with. We want to be the only ones that have this. Perhaps. You know, just a thought. I think it's all politics, actually. I mean, oh, it is. It's a, 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 all, wars, bizarre. all wars politics. You cannot make this up in fiction. If you read this stuff in a Jean Le Carré novel or something, you go, this is far-fetched. This wouldn't work. Nobody would do this. Attack Syria for this. This is absolutely asinine. Mm -hmm. So, out of fear and ignorance, Obama and the U.S. will punish Syria for daring to kill civilians in a non-conventional way. They don't care if they kill them in a conventional way. Obama will bomb Damascus, probably killing civilians in the process, and feel good that the Syrian civil war has been brought back to the level that they can understand, one of blood and gore. Civilian deaths must be bloody. They must be understandable. Yeah. yeah, it makes for good uh, video on the news. They must involve pain and dismemberment and the ripping of flesh. There must be a prolonged period of suffering and anguish, something a chemical weapons don't seem to have. They're just not... I don't know what's what's the word I want here. They're not they're not well, good for visual. the six o'clock news. Not a yeah. Exactly, it's There's, not a visual experience yeah. in that sense. People just going to sleep is not as exciting as explosions. Yeah. I read about the effects of sarin gas. You know, it can kill in a in minute. A, yeah, exactly. a lethal dose kills in about a minute, and what it does is it um, inhibits the use of um, acetylcholine transferase. It's a, a protein that stops the um, the production of acetylcholine in the neural synapses um, from the nerves to the muscle. So basically what happens is uh, you use up all your acetylcholine, you get paralyzed and you stop breathing because your lungs are a muscle and, or actually the diaphragm is a muscle, but then it stops working and mm -hmm. you just asphyxiate. Right. I mean, it's a grim death. It happens right. quickly. It's not painless, but it's not bloody. It's not the ripping of flesh and the limbs flying here and there. They understand that, that mm -hmm. brutality. I can't understand why. You know, a, a proper government, a free United States government, if it was free, it is not anymore, would use whatever means possible to kill its enemy if it was being attacked. Like we did in Second World War. That's how you fight a war. You to use win. chemical weapons. You use nuclear oh. weapons. You use whatever weapons are possible to, to defeat your enemy totally, totally and utterly. They don't even know how to do that anymore. Yeah. So this is just, I'm just flabbergasted as to why they're going in uh, to, to Syria. It's, it's beyond the understanding of a rational person. You got me. Um, it's interesting to see how that all works out. Yeah, it can't be good. <laughs> now, we're going to switch topics now quite radically, or sort of radically. I guess it's always a battle between capitalism and everything else. I have to say I had an on-air experience this past Monday that was a little different from most. And it was all about the subject of capitalism and how amazingly misunderstood and misrepresented that concept continues to be. My experience was not unlike what you're about to hear in our next commentary by radio host Peter Schiff on the subject of anti-capitalist film producer Michael Moore. Remember Michael mm -hmm. Moore? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Michael Moore t makes the same argument about capitalism, almost to the word, as did Sid Ryan earlier this week in a celebration. He's, he's the president of the Ontario Federation of Labour, of course. And uh, we'll learn more about that as uh, we return on the other side of this.
Speaking about crazy and ridiculous, I want to play uh, some a series of clips, uh, which is from a CNN. Uh, Pierce Morgan I had uh, Michael Moore, uh, documentary, liberal documentist, <laughs> discussing capitalism. And it's very interesting because first, uh, Michael Moore claims that, yes, he's gotten rich in America, but not because of capitalism. The capitalism is still, kind of, is still evil. Hey, listen to how this starts up. But cut number three. Is capitalism in itself wrong? And the reason I ask you that, you're a very, very successful, very rich filmmaker, apart from everything else you do. In a way, that is capitalism. I mean, you, you've got a business. Is it really? A company. Oh. Well, isn't it in yeah, its purest really? sense, isn't it? What pure? There's nothing pure about capitalism. Is it not, though? I it's not capitalism. That's, what is it? Uh, first of all, um, I do well. For a documentary filmmaker, I do really well. I'm very blessed and, and fortunate uh, that people want to go see my movies. The only reason I do well is because so many millions want to go see my movies. If they didn't like the movies, they would go see them, and I probably wouldn't be sitting here. So um, but, but there I mean, you go. It- but, but that's capitalism. That's not, in a way, capitalism. That is the very nature of capitalism. Michael Moore produces films that satisfy the demands of his audience who enjoys his films. He, they're entertained to the extent that they're willing to voluntarily spend their money to watch his films. So uh, Michael Moore gets rich by satisfying the desires of other people. He entertains other people, and as a reward, he gets rich. That is the very essence of what capitalism is about. What is he kidding? I mean, if this was a socialist country, what would happen is the minister of entertainment would be figuring out what documentaries are made. They would hire Michael Moore and tell him, this is the documentary you're going to produce. And it would produce it. And then people would be forced to watch it, whether they were entertained or not. Michael Moore doesn't really understand what capitalism is, and he continues to prove that as the interview continues. Here's cut number four. When you say the word capitalism, you have to talk about it in its current sense. You can't talk about the old days or the way maybe, you know, the, the Adam Smith, the sort of old uh, capitalism. Well, America fundamentally built on a form of capitalist dream. I mean, the idea that you can come from nowhere. As the you idea did, that and you, you work hard, hard and you, you prospered, yeah, all those and then everybody else prospered. And not only that, as you prospered, uh, the wealth was, was shared with your employees, with the government. Everybody had a piece of the pie. You, who started the business or invented the light bulb or whatever, you got a bigger piece of the pie. And you know what? Nobody cared because you invented the light bulb. That was a pretty cool thing. Yeah, exactly. You see, the problem is, and here I have a little sympathy for Michael Moore. He shows maybe a little bit more intelligence than people would give him credit for. See, he is calling what we have today capitalism what we have today is not capitalism it's crony capitalism it's fascism it's socialism it is not the capitalism of adam smith he is correct but to say that capitalism is bad because the current uh system is bad is 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 disingenuous because we don't have capitalism and really what michael moore is protesting is not capitalism but what government has morphed it into through its intervention 
You know, I can agree with what he just said there, but I don't like the term. Why is it capitalism that's being mold molded into something other form of capitalism? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. I don't like the use of the word crony capitalism. Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an oxymoronic term. It's cronyism, pure it's, and simple. Cronyism has got nothing to do with capitalism. It's the exact opposite of capitalism. Now, of course, this past Monday was Labor Day, a statutory holiday on which we're all supposed to honor labor, whatever that means. In By fact, not working. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, that very question, was the issue being entertained by more than a few talk show hosts I listened to over the past week or so? And they were all asking, what is it that we are celebrating? And my answer is, it sure ain't happy capitalism. <laughs> okay. There, I thought this was funny, Andy Utman over at CJBK said, they're celebrating memories of how good it used to be. <laughs> and he asked, is there a future for unions? And then they played a, 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 a quote from Sid Ryan, who said, quote, the capitalist system that's in existence right now is not working for us. It's not working for people anymore. It's working very well for those who are saying, we can't afford this anymore. We need to cut your wages. We need to cut your benefits. We need to maximize profit. And, uh, you know, that was a very significant assertion made by Sid Ryan, and it, just like Michael Moore's assertion, same thing. So needless to say, I couldn't resist calling in. Next thing I know, Robert, I find myself transformed from a caller to a guest on the show. I know you, you've heard this. And I some did, other yeah. folks on Facebook have heard this, and we're going to post this to this today's broadcast online later. And I was on for a little over an hour, part of which included a live on-air debate with the treasurer of the, London, of the London Labor Council, Mike Parkinson, who was at the Labor Day picnic in Harris Park where everybody there apparently could hear what was being said and what was being debated. So it was like going to the Labor Day picnic and giving a speech for me mm -hmm. in a funny sort of way. Now, that entire debate and all the conversations and comments to which I will refer will be posted as an extra to this show's online archive at www.justrightmedia.org. So you can, all, you can hear it all as it happened. Now, there was a whole cast of characters who, you know, who, who appeared on this, sh on this show of uh, Andes, and I thought so, so many of them had something valuable to offer. I can't possibly get to them all, but I want to touch upon a few. Of course, there's Sid Ryan himself, president of the OFL, who put the issue of capitalism on the table. And for that, I have to say thank you, Sid, because <laughs> you don't hear that, that issue brought up even. I'm, I'm amazed he was, wasn't afraid to use the word. But there was a caller, obviously a businessman named Kevin, uh, first caller on that show, and he provided a very perfect first-hand experience of what labor politics can do to a business. Says he was on his way to work, heard the subject, turned around and went back to make a call. And basically, he said one thing that bugs him is how unions keep thinking that they have some right to a share of the company's profit, right? In the absence of an agreement of the same, if you know what I'm saying. But their wage is the remuneration for their job, he insists. And he pointed out how in his case, payroll is just a number. He can only spend so much money on employees. And when minimum wage went up, thanks to Dalton McGinty, he went from 15 employees down to three employees because he still had the same amount of money he had available to spend on employees. And he says now companies are facing huge hydro and, and insurance bills, and they have no choice about those, so the only additional place they can cut is, guess where? Labor again. Just like Isabel Patterson said. She said it's always the worker that pays the price for socialism. Always the worker. 
And then, of course, you have your state-imposed burden of unemployment insurance, Canada Pension, Workers' Comp, um, you know, minimum wages. Uh, just amazing. He's not living in a capitalist world, right? And that is part of his problem. There was another caller, Mike, and he was, uh, he was a complete collectivist. He's one of these pathetic give-us-a-share argument, which never includes, by the way, sharing in the losses. Nobody wants to ever share in the losses. And he says capitalism is not going to work because there's no end to the greed of the big money boys, right? And the suggestion that to offer employees a share of profit is always suggested in a vacuum. Capitalism in business is a profit and loss proposition. You never hear about employees rushing to share in a company's loss, even if that company is operating at a loss for years and years. Then they still want raises in, in wages, and they never behave rationally, even in that case. So a company's profit has nothing to do with what motivates the unions. They keep going on the same rail, regardless of what the company's situation is. They just change the story depending on that. And then, uh, of course, um, there's other people who think, well, we're sending our jobs down south of the border. But amazingly, Patty Dalton, president of the London Labor Council, called in. And she listed among labor's contributions to society the following. She said, first, I'd like to point out, it's not unions who are responsible for this economic disaster. It's the neoliberal economic policies, pro-corporate policies of both provincial and federal governments. They've slashed corporate taxes. And so we have lost, collectively, billions of dollars in revenue, she said. And I'm thinking, who's the we? Who's the we? Who, who's the we that lost billions of dollars in revenue? Unions don't collect taxes, so the we has to be the government, right? And so whose side is this union on? Is it on the worker's side or is it on the state? It can't be both. And as you'll find out, it's always on the government side. And, uh, you know, certainly, she says, certainly unions have been fighting all those liberal policies. And as you know, we're in an era of global austerity and unions are fighting that. <laughs> Isn't that a bit like admitting you're insane or evil? <laughs> certainly detached from reality. I, I don't know how you can say something like that. And then she talks about how she's privileged to be, you know, at the exciting Unifor convention in Toronto, which is the new big union. And she says that uh, the labor movement's turned a huge page and we're on a new era now. We've got, got more collective power than we've ever seen in one union in Canada. And they're going to turn the economy around. Now, how? No answer. No answer or even a suggestion of how a system of thuggery and plunder can turn anything around. I don't see where that's ever happened. And speaking of the economy, and she didn't actually say anything about the economy other than to use the word as if it had some kind of meaning to her, um, she says, I'd like to note that according to the Canadian Labour Con Congress statistics, union workers in London earn approximately $6 more per hour, and that doesn't take into consideration things like benefits and pensions. We also contribute weekly approximately $16 million to the local economy. Did you know they were giving their money away? They're contributing yeah. sixteen million a week. Well, thank you very I much. I didn't know that. Yeah. What a bunch of crap! <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, uh, you know, she goes. Unions have to fight fiercely for workplace rights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And Andy just gave this incredulous wow and said, "Let's leave on a positive note." <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a caller who calls in pretty regularly. His name's Garish. I don't know if you've heard him. Yes. And uh, he said the capitalist system... Well, first of all, he said unions are badly needed and must have their strength restored. And he believed that our youth are being exploited by all these Kmarts and Walmarts and all these marts who constantly threaten them, get this, threaten them with lower wages, no benefits, and not living wages. 
<laughs> when? When they're on the street and they don't have a job, the, the company's coming out, I'm going to threaten you, I'm going to threaten you. Jeez. He says the fast food outlets are serving poison to their customers, and that's why their unions are going on strike. I couldn't even make a connection there. That didn't even make sense. And he complained that how 50 years ago, the ratio of a worker's pay to that of a CEO, CEO was 10 or 15 to 1. Today it's 150 to 1. So we need government to correct that, he says. And he thinks that this capitalist system has been replaced by greedyism, which has crept into capitalism. I'm thinking, oh, wow. And he says we need government control to control the pay of corporate executives. Just amazingly, not even in the picture, just this fellow's completely lost, all for the want of a word. And that word is capitalism, of course. More on this after our bottom of the hour break. But first, the following voices you are about to hear from a July 2006 broadcast of the Michael Corrin Show, when it was back on CTS Network, not on the Sun Network. Now, on this panel, discussing the Ontario Federation of Labor's call for a boycott on Israel at the time, do you remember that? This was back in 2006. Yes. Uh, the voices you will hear are those of Claire Hoy of the Toronto Sun, Paul McKeever, leader of the Freedom Party, Sid Ryan, Ontario Federation of Labor, and, of course, Michael Corrin. Now, be sure to take special notice of the tone of this debate, especially as it develops from the starting point, because I've personally experienced this precise same bullying, quote, de you know, debating tactic from Sid Ryan. It, it would be really funny if it weren't so pathetic and sad, but we'll return after this and carry on with our conversation. Like terrorists and attack your own people, He's which we all agree. What you're, sa what you're also saying, though, is it's okay now, though, to attack <laughs> civilians in another country? It's okay to, fight, to defend yourself. If, it re if, the, if the enemy, if the activists who are attacking your country and, and haven't, have embedded themselves, have, have uh, surrounded themselves... So kill all the civilians around them as well. They are at fault. My they God. are the murderers if they are... My God. God. I would give you the example of, of Janine, uh, which was a hotbed for terrorist groups of all sorts. Um, Israel went, could have gone in there with aircraft or artillery and just bombarded the place. They chose to send soldiers in there. Sure. Uh, in the end, and you had Western media talking about this atrocity, and, and the numbers came down from hundreds and hundreds to 85 Palestinians who were killed, and, and there were more than well, there were 24 Israelis who were killed and many wounded. That ratio of, of, of one to four is very, very high. There isn't, but Israel lost that man because it, it was willing to go in there house to house to house yep. to take out the bad guys. Yep. And virtually everyone who was killed was someone who was carrying a gun. But the world doesn't like to talk about that because that might show Israel in, in a better light as a country that actually does care. Sure. And yes, sometimes civilians die. You're surrounded by these countries that say, we're going to murder you, wipe you off the... We're going to sponsor international anti-Semitism and yeah. say you're scum drop, and animals. We're going to drop a bomb in a house full of children and that's just okay. Yeah, that's ex they do that on purpose. That's fine. Because that really well, helps. Well, they did that. They did it on the house and they dropped it down. The there are children. Let's kill them. How yeah. did we get back to blaming Israel for what happened in India? Because <laughs> no, 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 don't be so silly about this. Because the, argument, He's not being the, the argument that he was making was that um, it's okay don't turn the guns on your own people. Don't, never, don't go after your own civilians. But it's quite okay to go after so civilians. It's not a question of civilian versus not civilian. In the civilian population, it's okay to kill the civilians, is what you're saying. What I'm saying, if you're going after a terrorist, and a ter terrorist has made it impossible to just get him, okay. if he said, you know what, I'm going to make myself safer by surrounding myself with innocent people, he is the murderer of those innocent people. Which, by the way, I know this will not be popular, I mean this, but it's standard procedure in the Middle East dispute. Of course. When a leader of Islamic Jihad or Hamas or Hezbollah sits in the middle of an apartment building and says, now come and get me, what is going to happen? Right. 
tragedy, I'm afraid. But that, that doesn't mean the country has no right to defend itself and its own children. If, that, if that's what your belief is, then the world has gone absolutely mad. Um, the world you, is if, mad. If, if, there, if, you, there if you actually think that that's okay, that you can just drop a bomb on an apartment building the world to get is mad, one person to so kill all of the rest sanity. of those innocent men, women and children, and, and you're going to sit here as yeah. a Christian and tell me that you believe that that's okay? There's the world, the world, wrong, the, Michael, world that line of the world is mad, but there are islands of sanity, no, no, and I would say you've got to let me finish at some point. I mean, really, eventually, no, 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 eventually, no, no, I have I, to. I don't think you've got a problem eventually. getting your point of view across in this show. Well, Sid, I give you a lot of time and to, you, to and say. You too. You take a lot of time as well, Michael. It's not. A, it's not. A, well, I am the host of this show, and I. Oh, sorry. Okay, go ahead, Michael. You're the host. Don't be childish. I respect your opinion. I allow you to speak, but you've accused me of saying you can't. Michael, a few minutes. I'll let you walk for nearly five minutes. No, the segments are only seven. I mean, I, if I can't make the point, I mean, you can go on, but believe me, Pierre, the, go ahead, people, Michael. people can see you. Yeah, and, oh, they can see you too, Michael. Thank God. I mean, I've got lots of emails, people saying that you're continually interrupting when you try to make a point. Yeah. Okay. So come on. Good. It goes I'll to interrupt waste. again. never fails to impress me. No matter how vast the differences may be between cultures, people always have something that somebody else wants, and trade is bored. Or more to the point, theft. What have you got? Greed is eternal. Greed is eternal. Greed is eternal. Greed is eternal. You've had a tough year, Quark. That's an understatement. I see all these great opportunities out there and I can't do anything about them. Without a Ferengi business license, it's like I don't exist. You disapprove of me, Quark. You always have. Moogie, stop wearing clothes. Moogie, stop earning profit. You have stopped, haven't you? I mean earning profit. Wearing clothes is bad enough, but profit... You see what I mean? <laughs> wearing clothes is bad enough, Robert. <laughs> what are you doing wearing your clothes? <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> In any case... As long as you can combine the two, not wearing clothes and making a profit. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Right. <laughs> you know, I thought it interesting listening to Sid Ryan in that previous clip talking to Michael Corrin saying, as a Christian, you shouldn't be in favor of this, right? And I'm going, I can't think of anything in Christianity that says that if the, on the side of good there's one and on the side of evil there's two that you go with the side of evil based on the numbers. He's just such a rude man. It, 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 it is. And that's, the, that's how it works. That's how the whole thing is. And, you know, it was the same thing when I was debating with Mike Parkinson on Monday. And you can hear this yourself online when we post it. And, uh, you know, I gave him all these great arguments of why I'm a capitalist and not a socialist like him. And all he basically said, well, is, well, you have a right to your opinion and I got a right to mine. Didn't even get a, a counter-argument. Just just an assertion and a, and a rejection, right? And actually, when I thought about it, he lied then too. I don't have a right to my opinion, not as long as he has a right to his, because his opinion negates mine. <laughs> I can't act on it. I don't have the freedom of labor that I would like to have in my own country or to buy products from the, from at, a, at a competitive price. So he can't say that I have a right to my opinion, because I don't. I have a right to talk, but I don't have a right to my opinion. I can't act on it, which is two different things. Now, of course, when, uh, when Sid Ryan began on Monday with saying the capitalist system that's in existence right now is not working for us, it's not working for people anymore, you know, with that one phrase, he both set up the debate and won it, you know, without firing a shot, as they say. 
just by using that word. And he said, the capitalist system that's in existence right now, and that's the same line we heard used by Michael Moore, right? Same thing. He's redefined his terms. Well, he hasn't defined them at all, in fact. I don't know if there's any redefining going on. Just whatever whatever goes wrong is capitalism. That's problem. the definition. Because, because that's it, has to definition. Do, yeah, it has to do with greed, right? And that's one of the words I want to talk about, this word greed. And, you know, the war of ideas and maybe even politics in general, is all a war in epistemology about definitions and words. Words have values. Words have meanings. And one of those words that surfaces constantly is this word greed. And <clears throat> this greed is not an issue. It has nothing to do with anything. Now, I don't like using the word greed myself, because um, generally I like to distinguish it from rational self-interest. And there is a situation where people are what I would call greedy, which means they want to live at the expense of others. And isn't the irony here that that's who I would call the unions? But I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to assume that we're all greedy and that greed is eternal, in the, in the way the Ferengi said there. So if greed is simply self-interest, then either we're all greedy or none of us are. And I think in a political context, greed is an anti-concept. And the person who accuses another person of being greedy is just saying, don't be concerned with your self-interest, be concerned with mine. Isn't that greed? You know, of course, he knows that if he says it that way, his greed will be revealed. So instead, he puts it altruistically. He says, don't be concerned with your self-interest. Be concerned with the other guy's self-interest, which includes me, of course, but he doesn't say that. That's, <laughs> yes. You can always catch them on that, too. And it, it, we've, we live in an age today where concern with one's own self-interest in and of itself has become to regard it as evil in and of itself, while concern with the welfare of others has been turned into the highest moral ideal. And all this is being done in the interests of nothing more than plunder. Just watch how concerned with the welfare of others all these union altruists are when it's time to go on strike. Do they care about your kids, really? When they go on strike, you ever seen anybody care about kids? Do they care about getting into the hospital? Do they care about your operation being delayed? Do they care about anything besides themselves? And you know, in nature, no organism could possibly survive by placing the interest of another species above its own. Could you see that working out here? Eat me, eat me. <laughs> you know, you're dead, you're gone. And here's the funny part. Even collectives operate on self-interest. Do you hear concern with the welfare of others when they decry jobs going to others, even though they're getting jobs, whether to competitive labor or to other countries? I don't. What I hear is what I would call greed. Now, collectivists are not opposed to greed or self-interest. What they're opposed to is seeing it in individuals, apart from the group. Group greed and group self-interest are the name of their game. Our group greed is justified, they claim, because we also do good for others. It's literally what I heard person after person saying on Monday. We have all these community activities, and we get involved in politics, just like we heard Sid Ryan talking about Israel. Is that what, where you want your union dollars to go? Is <laughs> yeah. that, what has that got to do with labor? What a legitimate function of a, yeah. a Canadian Labor Congress. Jeez. <laughs> so, you know, so given that we're all greedy especially under the viewpoint of the collective, then it only stands to reason that we have to develop a social system that prevents that greed from doing any harm to other people, right? And let's assume that greed is harmful. That hasn't even been made. That case hasn't been made, and it, it is only harmful when force is applied. 
Now, there's only one way that a person's greed can harm anyone, and that is by physically forcing that other person to have to deal with the greedy person on the greedy person's terms. You have to have the right to consensually negotiate. In economics, that means agreeing to a price in exchange for a good or service. If no agreement is reached, then each party goes his own separate way and looks for others who are willing to deal on the terms preferred. They're not locked to each other in a permanent, lifelong marriage where they have to agree whether they want to get along with each other or not. And that system, the other system, the one we should have, is called capitalism. You know, union reps like to say they like to negotiate, but that's another trick of the language. To negotiate, you need freedom of association. And again, if you can't walk away from the deal and deal with someone else, you haven't got the right to negotiate. There's no negotiating going on at all. Of course, there is the issue of exploitation. And that's another word we hear made a lot of use of. <laughs> that, that's what the, you, you caught it. You caught uh, it of right course, away. I know what the word exploit means. Yes, it simply it, means to, to use. make use of. <laughs> <laughs> However... I think it's it is a little misused. It has I, I I look at I think you can make use of objects and natural resources. Those are things we exploit. Whereas people, like yeah, you can use it loosely, but generally economically we say people are employed or engaged in doing the exploiting of the former objects mm -hmm. and natural resources, right? They in, they they enjoin with the employer to do the exploitation together. It's not one exploited by the other. I mean, why, if that's true, then why aren't uh, why why don't we hear hear it said that employees are exp exploiting their their bosses and their companies? Aren't they? Aren't they all making quote use of each other? Sure. But at that point, the word has no meaning anymore. It has no more distinction. So the whole again another another play on words, and you know, this whole thing about organizing labor is not about organizing labor. What's being organized is violence and force and the suspension of consent, organized into a legal acceptance as a way of doing business. That's what they're organizing. And it takes many forms. Uh, strikes, political protests, prevention of trade with competitors, campaigns against capitalism and for socialism, calling for a boycott of Israel, as did Sid Ryan, all of this stuff. All of it always on. Why, why are they always, 100% almost, picking the wrong side of the issue? They always pick... The bad guy. Because they're bad guys. Well, th there must be something, you know. And we've got this new head of Unifor now, whose name is Jerry Diaz. And as he said, he'll be aggressive and fight. He's going to be fighting. And I'm thinking, well, who's he fighting? Guess who he's fighting? He's fighting you. He's fighting labor. He's fighting competitive labor. The people who are willing to get those jobs at a price less than he's willing to let them have it. You know, union reps have said in this town before that, quote, they own the jobs. They own them. Nobody else has a right to that relationship. And that's the whole point. A job is a relationship uh, between an employer and an employee. And nobody can own a relationship. It doesn't even make sense. But then nothing that unions say makes sense. So that's why you have a conversation like that one you had between Sid Ryan and Michael Corrin. It just deteriorates into a gimme-gimme. And it is childish. He picked the right word. It's a childish, immature way of thinking. And, you know, if I was going to say anything to the unions, I'd say, grow up, for heaven's sakes. A civilized culture is one in which initiation of force is prohibited in relationships. Union philosophy, both as preached and as practiced from its inception to this very day, is opposed to the banning of the initiation of force in economic relationships involving union members. It's a losing proposition for both sides in the long term. In the short term, yeah, you might make get up on the other guy. 
So just in closing, the so-called economic mess we have today is not capitalism, but has another name. And it's uh, far more accurately descriptive, and that's just simply socialism. So what we have now you know, is far more socialism than capitalism. And to correct Sid Ryan's statement, I would say the socialist system that's in existence right now is not working for us, and it never did. Never will. <laughs> and never will. And that's it for me on that issue for right now. Now, I know you're going to go, actually carrying on with this theme, you're going to be looking at that song that the unions sing. What is that called again? Solidarity Forever. You're going to sing it for us? No? Nope. Oh, gee. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll just have to hear it and in, in, in words. We'll be back right after this. Madison? Ed, you're on the air. Okay, I was just wondering how you think you're going to get reelected, Senator. I mean, considering your votes on the ERA, it's like you don't even know or don't care. Of course I care, Beth, but I don't support any measure which legislates benefits to one particular group, whether they be male, female, black, Hispanic, or whatever, at the expense of any other group. Thank you, Senator Madison, and thank you, Beth, for your call. Local news next. This is Fielding Chase here with Senator Gordon Madison, back in five. Capitalism is the system that leaves man free to function. It leaves each individual free to live by his own mind and judgment, pursue his own goals, trade voluntarily with others. It's the system based on the morality of rational self-interest. Socialism is the opposite. However socialists may protest that the individual will benefit under their system, the fact remains socialists claim that the standard of value is not the life of the individual but the welfare of the group, whether they call it the collective, the community, the race, the nation, the proletariat. They hold that it's the duty of the individual to serve the group, to sacrifice for others, as decreed by the group's representative and spokesman, the all-powerful state. This viewpoint must mean ultimately the enslaving of the individual by the state, and therefore the crushing of thought, production, achievement, and finally of life itself. In the 19th century, when the West came closest to capitalism, the result was the highest standard of living and the longest interval of peace in mankind's history. The moral is the practical. As for socialism, look at the collapse of England, look at Soviet Russia, and remember that Nazi Germany meant National Socialist Germany. The results of socialism everywhere, uh, am I out of time? Yes, you are. Are as bad as they could have been predicted. Thank you. And that, of course, was uh, Leonard Peacock from yeah. Debate, Debate 84 in Toronto. Debate 84 at the University of Toronto, yep. Yeah. And, of course, Leonard Peacock is the uh, intellectual heir to Ayn Rand. And I'm going to start off this little segment with a quote from Ayn Rand I found appropriate for this topic. Quoting Ayn Rand here. As products of the split between man's soul and body, there are two kinds of teachers of the morality of death, the mystics of spirit and the mystics of muscle. Those who believe in consciousness without existence and those who believe in existence without consciousness both demand the surrender of your mind, one to their revelations, the other to their reflexes. What is the nature of that superior world to which they sacrifice the world that exists? The mystics of spirit, spirit curse matter. The mystics of muscle curse profit. The first wish men to profit by renouncing the earth. 
The second wish men to inherit the earth by renouncing all profit, unquote. Now, one of the anthems to the mystics of muscle, i.e. unions, is the union movement's Solidarity Forever, written by Ralph Chaplin in 1915 for the Industrial Workers of the World, an organization he belonged to. Paying close attention to the lyrics of the song, we see the mystics of muscles attempt to gather strength through unity in the same way that a single stick may be broken, but a bundle of sticks bound together is more difficult to break. In unity, there is strength, physical strength. The Latin word for a bundle, by the way, is fasces. It is from this word that our word fascism is derived and the symbol of the bundle of rods has been used to symbolize physical strength from the times of the ancient Romans through to the National Fascist Party of Mussolini's Italy. Italian fascism promoted an economic system which rejected both capitalism and Marxism and favored corporatism to represent employers and syndicalism to represent the workers. It's a system... Which a lot of people would call crony capitalism today. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's yeah. literally what they would call it. Yeah, it is. That's true. It is this system of fascism, or minor variations of it, that the song Solidarity Forever was meant to promote and still does to this day. Let's look at the lyrics. The first stanza. When the union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run... There can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. Now in this first stanza, the concept of the single man being weak, while a group, tribe, or a union of men is greater than any power beneath the sun. The terms have been identified. It's a struggle between the individual versus the struggle of the collective. Exactly. As I said, Robert, it's not about greed at all. It's just their greed versus the greed of the individual. Yep. That's all it is. And their greed comes first. And, and of course... two or more of them. Oh, yes. <laughs> How moral can you get? How immoral can you no, get? No, I was... Being, yeah, I know. I was joking. Sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> we do sarcasm well on this show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, course of cor- uh, the chorus is, of course, solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever for the union makes us strong. And that, of course, repeats the theme of the fasces. In unity, there is strength. Now, the second stanza is, Is there aught we we hold in common with the greedy parasite who would lash us into serfdom and would crush us with his might? Is there anything left to us but to organize and fight for the union makes us strong? Now, this stanza identifies the employer as a greedy parasite presumably feeding on the workers, using a lash, crushing them into serfdom. Now, even in 1915, the notion of feudalism, which the song seems to suggest, will be the result of uh, unchallenged employers. It has, it's been obsolete for over 500 years before 1915. It's quite amazing that the mystics of muscle could use such an image as ancient feudalism to rally people to their cause. But... There it is. The third stanza. It is we who plowed the prairies, built the cities where they trade, dug the mines and built the workshops, endless mines of miles of railroad laid. Now we stand outcast and starving midst the wonders we have made. But the union makes us strong. 
This verse blanks out entirely the role of the minds of men in agriculture, architecture, city planning, geology, transportation, course, and the economy the at large. One. There's only an uh, individual can think, and I'm telling you, Robert, I've seen it myself firsthand here in this city. I've seen the power of one against the collective, and the power of one always wins. Mm -hmm. I remember it when the garbage strike was on in London. And uh, the unions here were all screaming, and we had one or two of us, Mark Emery and a couple others, and we beat the union and brought that whole thing down just by publicly condemning them. Well, on the you other know? side of the coin, you have the and mind, for example, of a Karl Marx changing the world. The mind of a Sid Ryan ruling with an iron fist the Labor Congress or whatever that organization is that he rules. You know, he's the man that benefits from their labor. He is the corporate man. He is, he's actually his own worst enemy, as, as they say, right? He's become that which he despises. Well, yeah. But Only individual minds can think. There's no such thing as a collective mind. Correct. Only an individual has a mind. And, and they've totally blanked out the use of the mind in planning all of the things that need to go into agriculture, architecture, and, and, and building cities, and mining, and transportation. Apparently only brute force and muscle are required to bring forth food from the ground or design a skyscraper to find minerals a mile below the ground. Can you imagine a group of workers, I mean, just let's call them ditch diggers for want of a better term, but they could just be iron workers, whatever. They're sitting around one day and saying, let's build a skyscraper. How do we go about that? I don't know. I thought you knew. No, I don't know. Let's just put some iron together. No, well, it's, it, they don't understand learn. that it requires planning and intellect and creativity and a mind, a single individual mind. And businessmen to gather the money necessary, the capital necessary to actually to move that earth and yes. to dig the earth. Here's the fourth stanza of the song. I'm running out of time here. All the world that's owned by idle drones is ours, and ours alone. We have laid the wide foundations, built it skyward, stone by stone. It is ours, not to slave in, but to master and to own, while the union makes us strong. Greed is the theme of this verse. Greed on the part of the worker. The employer apparently does nothing to develop a business. He's an idle drone in the mind of this writer. Yeah, why do they need an employer then? Why don't they just go about it yeah. themselves and cut the employer out and get rid of the middleman? And the, <laughs> the, the, the employer must be overthrown so that the mindless worker and the mystics of muscles can be the masters. Here's the fifth stanza. They've taken untold millions that they never toil to earn. But without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong. Again, we hear that the employer is idle and haughty and undeserving of his millions, and only the worker deserves him as if they had not already been paid for their labor, as that Kevin Collar mm. said on the show. They want it all, and will settle for nothing less. They don't want the losses, though. They don't want to share in that. <laughs> no. Don't forget that. It's not the brain of the creator of a business who creates the work to these people. It's the brain and the muscle of the worker. There's a complete disconnect between the mind and the muscle, even in this verse. The use of the word freedom is curious. Freedom from what? Freedom from an employer? And finally, the last stanza. In our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of armies magnified a thousandfold. We can bring up to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for the union makes us strong. Now, the ignorance of capitalists is staggering. Uh, of, of these unions is, is, is staggering. Oh, uh, no, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I wrote this properly. The ignorance of capitalists is staggering to these people. They hoard their gold, don't you know? 
they don't invest it. They don't create jobs with it or produce products with it or run factories with it or spend it. They hoard it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Laughable. Finally, we hear the mystics of muscle lay out their real plan, using force and violence a thousand times greater than any army. They intend to birth a new world order from the ashes of the old. They want to burn down the world. Everything in their, in their whole language structure is destructive. Yep. It's all about it's, force, it's all about force violence, destruction, violence, greed. And, and it's all theirs. And it and I think it's a self-image. I think it, 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 it it's, it's a projection of how they think about people in general. And that last stanza is mm -hmm. pretty chilling. Through the death of untold millions of workers, utopia will arise with the crushing of the capitalists. Unbelievable. It is not through voluntary trade or contract or negotiation or fair dealings will the workers prosper. It's only through force and violence and death. And that's what Just ask Mussolini or any other fascist. <laughs> in unity, there is strength. And that's something, by the way, talking about words and their definitions. People have to understand. Union workers like Sid Ryan, like the people you debated on that radio show, they are advocating a form of socialism called fascism. They have destroyed the word capitalism, and they've destroyed the word fascism. When we think of fascists, we think of the right wing. Sorry, no. Unions are fascist organizations promoting a fascist socialist society. You got it. Anyway, on that light note, we'll have to leave it for another week. <laughs> so join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright <laughs> Here you are, sir We got enough dynamite here to blow up the ruddy camp Yeah, and I know just where to place the stuff Don't tempt me <laughs> I would love to put one stick of dynamite on the clink squatters Not there, he and Hockstead are in town dancing their feet off with Lily Frankel We'd better work fast before they get back You're right All right, New Kirk, you and Kin start wearing the dynamite Carter starts the timers. LeBeau, watch the window. Right. There you go. Ghost is coming! All right, put it away. Hi, Schultz. Making a bed check, we're all here. I just wanted to be sociable. Just because you're a social democrat, you don't have to be social. <laughs>